Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Agilin, and on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes their Terry Prentice work, both timely and timeless. So grease the lens, frame the shot using a troll as a stand-in, and join us on our journey through moving pictures! I am Aaron, Senior Vice President for Assistant Vice Presidents. I'm Anna, and I'm a Wonder Dog Trainer. Wait, 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 wait. Does that mean that I'm a wonder at training dogs or that I train Wonder Dogs? Hi, I'm Justin. Have I ever lied to you? I, I mean that metaphorically. Hi, I'm Minna, and I have stars in my eyes, literally. So for the plot here, I'm synopsizing it this time, and... So uh, buckle in and, you know, have, have your bathroom break and get a glass of water because uh, there's a lot, lot happening here and a lot to summarize. Um, this time around, there are at a solid four major subplots and there's two minor subplots that I'm not even going to cover here. I think one of those is going to come up for discussion later, possibly both of them. Um, but there's a lot, there's a lot going on. So after our usual, and, and this time is especially cinematic, one page retake that. One page introduction to the disc world, we open on a scene roughly 30 miles away from the great city of Ankh-Morpork. Death has come for the hermit Deccan Ribobe, the last keeper of the door, who has suddenly realized what exactly means when the last keeper of something dies. And as the door is no longer kept, a wild idea escapes and begins to make its way, as so many other things do, to Ankh-Morpork. The idea, as it turns out, has taken hold in the alchemist's guild. They have invented octocellulose, the disc equivalent of film. They have also discovered that, like the round world film, and basically everything else that the alchemists make... This is extremely flammable. The alchemist's latest explosions also catch the notice of the wizards, who are under new leadership. They've appointed Arch-Chancellor Ridcully, a prodigy who left the university 40 years ago to live on his family estates. Um, the wizards thought that he would bring peace and stability after their recent infighting and chaos <clears throat> sorcery. Ridcully has turned out to be a rather unconventional choice, uh, among other traits, he has a love of crossbows and is a mourning person. The wizards decide that exploding is, you know, just something that the alchemists do, and there's nothing to be worried about here. And don't notice when the explosions unexpectedly stop. The alchemists have perfected their invention and move away from the city for further work. They have moved to... Holy Wood. We next meet Victor Tugelbend, 
a student wizard who is preparing for his upcoming final exam. He is not, however, studying to ace this exam. He's figured out that he can live comfortably off of his inheritance stipend as a student while not having to actually do any form of work. And so for some time, he's he's had a con where he's managed to consistently achieve a grade lower than the passing mark, but higher than the threshold at which his inheritance would be withdrawn. Um, Victor, of course, this means Victor knows quite a bit about magic and doesn't really need to study after all. And he gets bored and ventures out to the pub where he rescues an old man from a mugging. This old man turns up turns out to be Silverfish, the alchemist. Silverfish and his companions are setting up a show. And through Victor, we catch our first glimpse at what the alchemists have been up to as they project moving images onto a sheet. Victor, under the thrall of the magic, skips his exams and heads to Holywood himself. He's not the only one, nor is he the first. A town has been hastily built up, and Victor finds Silverfish, learns how the moving pictures are made. It is, in fact, imps painting very, very fast on the octocellulose. And he convinces Silverfish to give him a job as an actor. Dibbler, our good old friend cut my, uh, cut me own throat Dibbler, has also found Silverfish and convinces him to hire him as a manager um, so that he can implement his brilliant new invention. Advertising. Victor shoots his first film, joined by Ginger and two trolls, and an odd thing happens. He seems to lose consciousness, and when he comes to, he's congratulated on a wonderful performance in which he apparently passionately fought the trolls and equally passionately kissed Ginger. The two Holman, eh, retake. The two humans have a very tumultuous day and end up fired by Silverfish. Meanwhile, back at Unseen University, a mysterious device has begun to sporadically vibrate and shoot lead pellets. The next day, freshly unemployed, Victor goes for a swim and sees an ancient sunken city. Upon returning to land, he discovers Deccan's ritual journal and corpse and begins to form a hypothesis that not all here is as it seems. Victor and Ginger both scrounge up new jobs as horse holder and waitress, respectively. And after a night at the bar, Victor is approached by Gaspode, the talking wonder dog. Gaspode, in turn, negotiates their contracts when Dibbler offers to rehire them. It turns out that their clique is a roaring success back in Eggmorepork. The two restart their acting work, uh, with Dibbler now joined by his nephew, Saul. Among the wizards... The bursar has researched the device and discovers that it measures disturbances in reality. The clicks have also caught the notice of the librarian, who sits through many showings, growing more and more worried, and takes a section of film off of the reel for future research. Victor continues to be suspicious of the odd behavior and happenings in Holywood, and realizes that to fully translate Deccan's journal, he needs to return to Ankh-Morpork and the university library. Gaspode helps Victor negotiate when uh retake that. Gaspode helps Victor negotiate with Dibbler for a paid trip to the city, and the actors are joined by another dog. A another wonder dog. This one is sleek and photogenic in co- in contrast to the rather threadbare Gaspode. And is named Laddie. Laddie is 
a himbo of dogs, perhaps. He is he's bright of eye, soft of fur, strong of body, and dumb of ass. The magic that brought Gaspode his intelligence and gave him the ability to talk has passed Laddie by. Gaspode, rather unintentionally, develops a soft spot for this other dog and also teaches Laddie how to negotiate for high-quality food and gets a cut of the steak. Things have continued to get weird around Hollywood. Ginger has been particularly affected. Laddie proves his wonder dog status by finding Ginger unconscious in the sand outside of the city. Ginger appears unharmed other than her hands being covered in sand and her nails worn down. Victor and Gaspode spot a door into the hill and surmise that Ginger has been trying to open it. Victor carries Ginger back to her room and he and Gaspode try to figure out why she's trying to open the door. Their guess is that she is in league with, or has been overcome by, dread forces of doom. After a night on the town, Gaspode and Laddie witness Ginger leaving her room and, rather unaware of her surroundings, walking back to the door on the hill, which is now open by several inches. Back in Ankh-Morpork, the librarian has entered the deepest the deepest depths of the library, in search of answers, and he finally finds them in the Necrotelecomnicon, a grimoire detailing the dungeon dimensions and their intrusions on reality. It seems that Hollywood draws the attention of the things in these dimensions, uh, as well as of people, and that whatever came from it last time was so terrible that the whole city was sunk. He also learns of a guard, a golden man holding a sword, who is definitely for sure not just a giant Oscar statue, who was pledged to guard the gates of Holywood, as long as he was remembered. Dibbler, Saul, and Silverfish had begun work on a new click, a 20-reeler about the Ankh-Morpork Silver War. Victor and Ginger will star, of course, and an entire model city will be built and burnt to the ground. We also begin to see creative differences between Saul and Dibbler, the former motivated by art and storyteller, and the latter motivated by filthy, filthy lucre. The two begin a small war of their own, in which Dibbler attempts to insert advertising into the film, and Saul attempts to find and remove every instance. Gaspode informs Jin- uh, Gaspode informs Victor of Ginger's digging and the state of the door, and Victor uses his wizardly education to theorize about what's going on. He guesses that there's a gateway in reality beyond the door, and that the dungeon dimensions are using Ginger to open the door so that they can attack. He agrees to guard Ginger while she sleeps, but nods off, and she ends up with a head start on her way back. Victor and the dogs follow her and find the door completely open and head in after her. The passage leads to a decaying theater with a literal silver screen, which is occupied by the skeletons of its last attendees, and a statue of a man with a sword, and a large suspended bronze disc. An accidental burst of noise from the decrepit organ wakes Ginger and collapses the tunnel. Luckily, there's enough of a gap for Laddie and Gaspo to crawl out and fetch help. Everyone escapes, and the tunnel further collapses behind them, leading a very relieved victor to believe that the gateway has been sealed for good. Back in Ankh-Morpork, however, the resograph tells a different story. It is reading a colossal disturbance in reality. 
The next day, Holy One... The next day, Holywood awakens to thick fog, and our cast sets out for Ankh-Morpork for the red carpet premiere of the epic film. Upon arriving, Ginger and Victor discover their new fame and enter the giant theater, which looks really disconcertingly like the one that they just found under the hill. The senior wizards, minus Ridcully and the Bursar, have also decided to go to the movies, leading to a very amusing sequence where they use wire to disguise their beards as fake beards and sneak in the back of the theater because they forgot to bring money. The film starts and things again start to get weird. The audience is hypnotized by the screen and the power of their shared belief begins to warp reality. The screen shimmers and giant things in the shape of Ginger and Victor step out. The dogs risk their lives to destroy the giant image of Victor by exploding the reels of film, while our stars and their unlikely allies, the wizards, pursue the image of Ginger, who is headed toward the university to absorb its magic. Victor realizes that they need to use the magic of holy wood, sets the cameras rolling, and manages to create an illusory horse and defeat the giant Ginger just in the nick of time. The imminent danger having been dealt with, the librarian explains to Victor and Ginger uh, that Ginger herself was not, in fact, possessed by the Dungeon Dimensions, but by some benevolent force trying to awaken the Guardian. Sensing that things have likely gone very, very wrong there as well, everyone rushes to Holywood. Indeed, once they arrive, they find that Holywood's reality has been warped to match that of the films. There's no sound. The tunnel has been cleared, and the Holywood inhabitants are sitting mesmerized by the screen under the hill. Upon reaching the horrifying scene and hearing a piece of chalk snap as they heatedly argue with each other via text, Ginger and Victor realize that the giant disc is in fact a gong. Detritus, the troll, strikes it, the guard awakens, the spell dissipates, taking with it the magic of Holywood. We see things go back to normal at this point. Dibbler goes back to selling sausages. Silverfish and the other alchemists salvage what they can from the wreckage of the town. And Death meets with the grievously wounded Gaspode, who, just as the last of the sand reaches the bottom of his hourglass, is saved by an also wounded Laddie, bringing help. The help, of course, rescue only Laddie, but leave the way clear for Gaspode to drag himself to freedom as the last of the Hollywood magic trickles away from him. And that's the book. There's a lot of book. There's a lot of book. There's so much book. Actually, I don't really have a sense of how much book there is in any given book, because I cannot tell with either, honestly, either ebooks or audiobooks if I don't try real hard to figure it out, and I did not try real hard to figure it out. It's not necessarily that this book is long. It's that a lot of things happen. Yeah. It bounces around a lot. But like it's not like with Rincewind books where it just can't decide what it wants to do. It just has so much going on. Yeah. yeah. It's it's threaded and it and it leads to a you know a climax. It's actually in some ways kind of close to the last book I summarized, which also had a very long summary. Um <laughs> maybe that's just my fault. Sorry, everyone. Uh Weird Sisters. The two of them both had a lot going on. Well, there's a huge cast, a lot of whom actually are important in this book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And going forward, too. There's a lot of names who, who emerge in this book and become Yeah, there's important. so many names that I'm like, I think I know that name, but I can't figure out why I know that name. But I must. But they must come yeah. back. I was yeah. so excited to see Ponder. 
I was gonna say Ponder Stevens. Uh, I know I know that name. No idea why. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like I knew the name Rid Cully. Mm-hmm. He's okay, the arch like, chancellor that Aaron's uh, been real excited to get to. Yeah. Okay, okay. So it's just been Aaron talking, not he's appeared in a previous book. And me talking as well. Sorry. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. The people who know just because he's, I think he becomes like the one that sticks around or something. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. Because this is this is the end of the Klingon succession in the Wizards. Uh, let's start with the the principles uh, first. Yeah, because I definitely didn't describe all of them fully. The romantic leads, right? Yeah. Uh, Victor and Ginger, um, who are cast very much as... I mean, Ginger is is several times a very clear reference to Marilyn Monroe. Victor is at least a little bit Errol Flynn, I think. Yeah, there's yep. a lot of Errol Flynn there. Yeah. The thin mustache and the, the, the deep V and stuff. The the prowess with a sword, at least when he's on camera. Mm-hmm. Laddie's pretty obvious, and Gaspode is Gaspode. Yeah, I like for for oh gosh, uh, my like mental image of Gaspode is the oh, from Lady of the Tramp. It's like the old dog. Mm-hmm. He's Lady the, of the Tramp. That he's the knobby knobs of dogs. Yeah, he is. only worse. <laughs> He's 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 the um, with like the uh, Burns condition, you know. There's so many diseases fighting inside him that none of them's gonna win. <laughs> I feel like he's not as bad here as he is elsewhere. Oh no, yeah. he returns. I mean, spoilers. There's a reason he's extra bad in the one I know him from. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about, and yeah, that's we're we're gonna have some stuff to talk about there. Not not good. Anyway, that's a problem for another recording. <laughs> yes. Um, and then the uh, you, they're not United Artists. What are they supposed? To, they're twentieth. They're twentieth century Fox analog. So the, um, so the, the ones yeah, we have are there's untied alchemists, right? Well, and there's there's century of of the, century the, of the fruit bats, the fruit bat. bat, century of the fruit bats. No, no, no fruit bat is another studio. Century. It's century of the, it's century of like the yeah, right? it's, it's like century of the peacock. Or something no, like it's century, century of the fruit, of the fruit bat. bat. There, there might have also been something with the peacock though. Right, there's there's a lot of studios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you can't, they can't just Terry just can't not make that joke. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. You guys are catching a lot more old Hollywood things than I was because I did not know that the alchemist thing was a reference to the un- untied alchemist was a reference yeah. to anything. Yeah. yeah. I only know 20th century because Fox 20th century was still around. I mean, I we can we can dig into the the all of the various references that we noticed and probably the <laughs> ones that we didn't. <laughs> later. So Is it still many. Fox 20th century? Or did um, they change it? Well, I it's think it's 21st now, century now. But also it's just, you know, House of Mouse now. Yeah. I mean, there was a Predator reference in this book. Yep. Yes, there was. <laughs> which which that was the one that I was like, "What? Oh, that's a Predator reference." If it bleeds, what we can kill it. What was the Predator it? reference? If it bleeds, we can kill it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't think I've ever seen Predator, it turns out. I think I've only <laughs> seen Alien versus Predator in that entire series. <laughs> That's a very you answer, honestly. All right, so uh, Silverfish is sort of the... He's the alchemist who 
really is out ahead of the game on making the clicks, which is what they. He's supposed call to be a clicks. reference to. Um, I I forget the the main name he went by, but one of the names he went by was Goldfish. Oh, so like Goldwyn. Yeah, he's a he's a reference to an actual person. Uh, and I mean Saul is probably Saul Weisberg or possibly. I did not know any of these were references to things. My god, I do not know anything about early film. <laughs> I do just by absorption. Uh Justin, did you ever do you ever go to the Stanford? So, um I, I went I went to the Apollo Theater for the first time in like 15 years. Two weeks before uh, the world shut down from coronavirus, they were ha- they were having a Kurosawa film festival, and mm. I it's got this, to see the is this the Packard Foundation, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think they're, they're they rebuilt a 1920s Art Deco movie theater in Palo Alto, uh. um, and at least when I lived around there, for six bucks you could go see a double feature of like they would play all sorts of amazing old films that I saw Wizard of Oz Love for the first that. time the, in like on 35 millimeter there. That's amazing. It's, it's, yeah. it's gorgeous. We saw uh, we saw one of our, like uh, my mother and I because she was in town. We saw one of the non-samurai Kurosawa films. Hmm. And it was fantastic. It was like, and yeah, it's like, oh, hey, we'll, we'll watch a, you know, it's it's an old movie theater. There's a balcony. Mm-hmm. And there's cur- there's nice curtains. It's wonderful. There's a massive, probably multi-million dollar uh, Wurlitzer organ that comes up out of the floor in bit for the, the intermission and stuff. Oh, wow. And also for, like, for silence. This is actually also an experience that I have and that I was flashing back to because Tampa has the Tampa Theater, which is 1920s movie palace. The, you know, the it's all, you know, set designed inside. So it looks like you're in like a courtyard in like a Venetian palace or something. <laughs> uh, and it also has an organ that comes up out of the floor. I have not been there enough. Anyway, back to the business. Uh, so Silverfish's business He's very much just interested in the the informational and educational aspects of it, and he is latched onto and ultimately sort of taken over by Cut Me on Throat Dibbler, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, who's interested who, in making money? Who's interested in <laughs> making money? Although, although he's also hit by the sleet of inspiration. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the films are sort of quote-unquote his and we can dive into some of the problematic aspects that 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 turns out to be but i think is very much intended to be a like hey remember how shitty hollywood used to be and sometimes still is um yeah especially early hollywood (laughs) yeah and then there's saul dibbler's nephew who i thought was definitely supposed to be the kind of the director who's interested in like storytelling and mm-hmm. like dramatic narrative and stuff like that. He very much is like the auteur side of things. Yeah, mm-hmm. the three of them make a an interesting kind of triad. Sticking with the Hollywood area, uh, we get a lot more trolls in this book. Yeah. A lot more named trolls with like fully fleshed out personalities, not just the muscle in front of, you know, the men drum. 
Rock and Murray? Maury, I want to say. Maury. Mm. Which my brain initially thought, is that a fucking Rick and Morty reference? <laughs> that no. I remember that this, book is, that this book is 25 years old in that show. I'm wondering if Rock is a reference to Rock Hudson. Yes. Who was a famous early leading man and also famously uh, the first major celebrity to die of an AIDS-related illness. Yeah, from what I have read, he definitely is. There's that, it, it's that line of like, you know, Rock. Rock's a nice name. Uh, and then Detritus, who uh, you will see more of. Interestingly, they, they describe him, the book describes him several times as old, which I had missed the first several read through reads through. I missed that too. And that's funny. That's not how he strikes me in general. No. But I guess trolls, you know. Age how much yeah. does that matter for trolls? <laughs> right. Right. Uh, there is, there's also Detritus's love interest, Ruby. <laughs> love her. Who is a torch singer. Yes. She's so good. Yeah. She knows exactly uh, what she wants. And what she wants is to be treated like a reasonable modern woman uh, and not be wooed in the old-fashioned troll way by having rocks thrown at her. She wants <laughs> romance, Hollywood style. Uh, and foliage. Style? Huh? <laughs> and foliage. And yeah, Ura. she doesn't understand yeah. why. She just wants to be wooed human style, because that's and, what she's been told she and should And sticky want, things in boxes. Yeah. Sticky, yeah. sticky things in... Turns out not to be the way for her to end up getting together troll style in the end. <laughs> she's she's so good, though. Like, that they they... There's so many of the good, like, lounge singer... Um, sorts of sorts of references with her. I got sort of a Marlena Dietrich vibe off of her too. Yeah, like like from Jester Rides again. Yeah, specifically specifically the song that she sings with the the falling in love again. Let's skip over the wizards for a second. Talk about the animals because oh, that yeah. was a weird weird subplot. Yes, the magic of Hollywood brings the talking animals and. I think this might be the only time where I've ever not wanted to, like, strangle talking animals. <laughs> yes, one of the subplots that I ignored in my in my summary. Uh, there were a number of talking animals that are clear references to, like... Sylvester um, and... Uh, Tom and Jerry. Yeah, Tom and Jerry, yeah that right. was Tom and Jerry. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's Although a, he spoke there's a, like Sylvester. Yes. There's a duck, um, yes. and somebody at some point says, What's up, duck? Oh mm-hmm. my god, did they? I missed that. But the, yeah, they are, a lot of them feel very Looney Tunes to me, yeah. uh-huh. which is great. Um, yeah, it was kind of a Toontown vibe almost. And, and there's there's a bunny, uh, and I was yeah. like, I, I was just waiting for a Bugs Bunny reference, and I don't think it ever actually happened, except for maybe What's Up, Duck, which I missed. Yeah, the, bu- the bunny says, What's Up, Duck. <laughs> okay, I was waiting for the bunny to have a Bugs Bunny reference, I just must have missed it. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, there's a, there's a cat. Does the cat get named? But, yeah, the cat uh, is a name, doesn't he? Think... They're all definitely not named things the like mouse is Fluffy definitely and not Thumper. Squeak. The rabbit is definitely not Mr. Thumpy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the duck is just the duck the entire time. It's just the duck. I don't think it's he like even actually says words. Yeah. No, it's it like can't the because the, yeah. 
They can't because the, the they can't do the mouth stuff. Yeah. Mm. They're definitely interesting. Yeah. And there's a wide swath of people who are references to various, you know, support industries that sprung up around early Hollywood. Yeah. A lot of carpenters. I hadn't realized that was such a big stereotype. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I only knew about Harrison Ford apparently being a carpenter. <laughs> and I don't even know the story behind that. I think one of my favorite offhand jokes in there, which was, you know, talking about how uh, Victor was relieved when uh, when he realized that it was imps involved because it was just normal occult and not magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This book is the entrance of the wizards in I think their their best sort of fashion. Hapless. Yeah. Which yeah, which is being a not quite background part of the plot, but a part of a non-wizard plot. I enjoyed this a lot more. I think my most helpless giggles were at the wizards during this. They're very good comic relief. Mm-hmm. They're the very wizards bad. Are so good. Plot-centered people. <laughs> I love the fact that they like decide like, oh, we're just gonna wear wires so we Yes They're honestly it's like I, I'm really in for like they're like they operate under like cartoon logic, which is yeah. great. Yes. Well, yeah. Like nobody will know we're wizard nobody will know we're wizards if we're not wearing our hats. And they're and they're just so helpless right. too. Like they the end up going time. to the they go to the theater and the they're like you know, ask for money for the tickets, and they're like, "What's money? <laughs> We've never had to have money before. We have influence." Yeah, and just like just dig up some like moldy coins. Every time they showed up after they started just being like five to seven people trying to cram themselves onto one wheelchair and like falling off and getting pulled back on again, just everything involving that was just. Very good physical comedy. I was there for it. I laughed a lot. <laughs> the terrible, horrible some, like, wheelchair. There's almost like aspects to that. They yeah. crashed through a barn and came out with chickens because of film logic. <laughs> right. Well, and because the people who were watching them were like, that's what's going to yes. happen because yeah, it yeah, happens yeah, yeah. in the clicks. Even though there's actually cabbages in the barn and no chickens at all. Right. Beautiful. <laughs> My cabbages. <laughs> yeah, no, nice, nice like, fresh in... <laughs> That's a nice, prescient reference. (laughs) Way before Avatar. Uh, And the bursar is, well, that's a spoiler. Um, He he tries very hard. He's very, he just wants to get his job done. There's no frog, there's no dried frog pills yet. I feel like it's very important to talk about Rid Cully and Bursar in the same sentence because they Mm. are foils for each other and it's kind Mm -hmm. of a fun dynamic. The Bursar's been around for multiple arch-chancellors. He's basically an accountant, mm-hmm. uh, being the Bursar, uh, who just wants to get things done and, like, not have to deal with this. A very dry humor that flies straight over some people's heads, I'm sure. Rid Coley is basically a country gentleman who just wants to hunt all of the time, and he is still like this at the university, where it is increasingly inappropriate. He's so good. Red Cully has the energy of Sherlock Holmes shooting a uh, VR into a wall. It's very yeah. British private school boy kind of. Yeah, he a little bit 
not in terms of like egotism, but he a little bit has the energy of Gaston when he's just inappropriately <laughs> doing hunting yeah. shit all around the town. Yes. Uh, uh, Which is honestly hilarious because it's like, you know, Arch Chancellor Wizardry. But... Yeah, they expected Radagast the Brown. What they got was Ridcully the Brown. Yeah. Yes. Oh, there, there was the, um, there's in fact a joke about that in the text of the book, where there's something like they, they expected him to be, you know, country wizard, you know, friend to the animals, uh, <laughs> talks to the animals, and he does indeed talk to the animals. What he says is, winged you, you bastard! Yeah. <laughs> I am amazed with, like, there's like three or four different hunting, like, Aid, aid creatures that get brought up. Like, there's dragons, but there's also, like, I have to see a man about a griffin and other <laughs> trained animals. <laughs> Absurd. Oh. Aaron, I just realized we can share that meme with Justin now. Uh, which one? There's a meme? I'm, I'm copying. I'm copying it. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, Somebody else will have audio. to explain Ponder in the radio. game. That's great radio right here. Here, I put it in the cut meme own throat dibbler channel. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll post, we'll, we can post this on the or feed. Or we can cut this whole section from we the episode, won't. frankly. Let's, let's, <laughs> you know. let's be real here. It's let's be real. I can go into um. the egg reel. <laughs> yes! I love it. <laughs> Such a good meme. That's I just been, saw the waveform of that laugh. I apologize. <laughs> that's been malingering in the scorpion pit. <laughs> Which oh, I, I just realized what the scorpion pit is. My god. It's, it's, so, it's so people can have memes without... <laughs> It's so no, people no, can have that. memes that exclude me. I just yes. remembered what the title is because it got referenced again in this book. We had several cameos by Vetinari, yeah. Yeah. And and the uh, and some other members of the watch. Yes, Nobby and uh and Fred. Yes. Oh, so do we do we want to move on with our discussion? I think we've covered most of the characters at this point. Yeah. Um y'all had listed the Dean and Ponder Stibbins. Somebody oh, else yeah. has Ponder. to take those though. I don't know either of them well enough yeah well, I, think, ponder, I think ponder becomes a perpetual grad student yeah ponder is just like a postdoc forever yeah yeah and does in fact never leave the university again just as the book says yeah the dean um the dean is also somebody who keeps coming back um who which one was he because i will 100 percent not remember who he is the the one the who is compared back. the one who is compared uncharitably to an over uh, overstuffed armchair. Yeah, he was one of the ones who went. He's going to um, become to distinct later, I assume, because yeah. I don't remember him. Yeah, I think everybody who goes to the movies comes back, like the lecturer in recent runes, mm-hmm. except um, for the really, really, like really, him. really old one. No, I he remember comes the back. chair. Oh, he does only because oh, I was does. completely confused always. <laughs> You and, I, you and I can talk about that later, Aaron. He comes back. I don't like him very much. Yeah. Mm. So there was one thing that was like, I don't want to say quite like confusing to me in terms of being unclear within the text, but I felt like it was something kind of odd in that it seems like Victor, for, for having been a student and like, 
essentially a very good student, like that he's managed to toe this line between getting an 80 and an 85 for years on end. Doesn't seem to know any magic other than like the kind of theory of knowing about the dungeon dimensions, etc. I'm not sure whether that's something of like that it's it would be taboo for somebody who hasn't like passed his wizarding exams to actually do wizardy stuff. Um, but it, I mean, it struck me as kind of odd. I only have pretty much. Rincewind as an example, and he's a very bad example, but like it wizard magic doesn't strike me as something that actually helps you very much in the real world. And That's Victor true. was in the real world. Like I think very like a lot of the stuff that we know of them doing is like really complex ritual bullshit that just really would not have helped him at any point in this. And like there's yeah. He's not even, I, I just, it makes sense to me that he wouldn't even, like, be doing it because that's not the life he's I, living in Hollywood. Yeah, I, I mean, like, from what we have seen of all wizards so far, it is not surprising that, like, that, uh, that Victor never once thinks magic is the first solution to any problem. Which is yeah. honestly, that tracks with the wizards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Most of what they learn is all of the situations in which you shouldn't use magic and all the things that you shouldn't do. Like, Victor suggests that wizards are, like, basically guardians of the world to stop it from falling apart, which, yes, a little bit, but also I think that wizard magic is otherwise only good for getting one over on other wizards. <laughs> That's they, what they use they it for. They learn it so that other people don't. Yeah. They also can summon Mutually death. sure destruction. Right. And the occasional thing like what Coin does with the, you know, the bubble and stuff. Yeah. It's like the first time, or no, the second time, because we get a little bit of that of sorcery. But like one of the first times we see like wizards doing actual magic because they levitate the chair. Which is a clear reference to like early D&D names too. Like, oh, yeah. Tensor's floating disc and stuff. Yeah. Because Terry was a nerd. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, Gindel's effortless elevator. Yeah, Which, that's a D and D spell. Yeah, and it says effortless, but then there's a scene where they're all like sweating and struggling to do the magic and having to balance their load. <laughs> right. Oh, confusing things. The thing that was the thing that was hanging from the ceiling in the Hollywood theater was that also the gong. Or was it just a, it was a very described? Okay, it was a very described set piece that didn't do anything. Okay, yeah. Okay, it, I wasn't sure. It wasn't quite Chekhov's, etc. In there, it, it felt like it was getting a lot of description. I'm like, I, but I cannot place this as either a reference or something that'll be useful. <laughs> so that I think was my I think the does the chandelier like fall and be like threatening slash dangerous at some point it might i don't, I don't recall good question something to if you know readers listeners write in and tell us or don't you could always I don't like care. look it up in the book we have a section we have a section for uh questions corrections and uh and listener response fuck you <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> That's it. That's the section. I knew I was forgetting to edit something in. Corrections, apologies. Nope, don't exist. We're perfect. <laughs> this is a flawless podcast. We accept zero criticism. It's all due to Aaron's editing, though. <laughs> I should put something, some really awful edit right there. Um, <laughs> okay, so uh, for the, was this your first time reading this, Minna? Yes. So I'd love to hear from you and Justin. There's energy to this book that I think is very different from a lot of the other Discworld books. It doesn't have a feeling like it's ever going to be like specifically revisited. I think it's like the first time where it's like he isn't setting something up and there's not really some big lore thing that he needs to do. It's just an examination. It's just an examination of a thing that is done within the book. And I think that's interesting because I think this book is like, there's a lot going on in it, but it is paced very well. And like, there's, we don't spend too much time lingering on what, how like on like Hollywood ramping up. It gets, it hits the, it hits the floor pretty quick. Yeah. Um, Well, like that was my challenge in putting together the summary was that like, I felt like most of what I included in the summary was really critical to the plot. And I I think that's it's it's definitely got like it's got an energy to it that I don't think a number of Discworld books have had where it's like it's not like it doesn't meander around or uh, but it's like it wants to explore a thing, parody a thing and go in on it on that as hard as possible, which I think is possibly it's saving grace with references because holy shit, there are so many references. Yeah, this yeah. one, it starts out with space, the final frontier. Well, the penultimate frontier. <laughs> oh, because death is the final frontier as is revealed in his last scene in this book. <laughs> Yeah, for me, my impression, so, like, I think the core of this book is almost a vehicle for, like, Hollywood references in Discworld. Like, I'm not saying this is a criticism necessarily, but that's what this book is about. It's about mixing up a bunch of Hollywood tropes and, like, references to old films, putting them in a bag and shaking them up and seeing what you can do with it. And it's fun but also it's fun but it's harder to nail down like a thesis to it if that makes sense it is fair but it's it's a very good exploration of like Discworld as a setting though for sure and I think more of that belief magic stuff it, it sort of feels like 332 pages of plot and memes yeah and I mean Weird Sisters is kind of like that with theater as well I think every time we get the inspiration leaking into the world, it just becomes a lot of real-world references. Like, even more than usual. I like this book, but it also kind of has a feeling of Terry being like, let me show you all of the things that I know about old theater. It it never really felt like any of them were too particularly hammered on. Um, But then again, this is a book where uh, they pull the 
three kids in a trench coat joke. <laughs> and it's like legitimately funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying referential humor is like a bad thing or even like mm-hmm. most of the humor being referential humor is a bad thing. I, I enjoy it. It's it's a big parody, basically. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this the plot is also strong enough that the references are Easter eggs, but I think even if you don't get them, it's not like it's not like the enjoyment is ruined if you don't yeah, get them. Yeah, because there's a yeah. lot I didn't get. Um, I will say that I thought it was smart to kind of pair some of the strongest references with the ratcheting up of the plot, like the mm-hmm. whole central gone with the wind thing, and also the elephants. Are the elephants like a specific reference? I don't know. I think it's just a reference to the the sort of early days of Hollywood like spectacle. Ben her style bullshit, basically. Yeah, just like how how do we top you know if we don't have the tech to top the theater the uh the the studio next door then we just outdo them listeners this is one of the subplots that i did not mention in my summary there's a subplot where a bunch of elephant herders get a order from Dibbler for a thousand elephants and bring them to ink more pork it's mostly a vehicle for blues brothers references though what I oh, haven't yeah. noticed the Blues Brothers references a little bit, and I've seen Blues Brothers. Somebody has to explain those to me. Oh, I thought that was a I thought that was a Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas reference. Oh, it was, it was the one where they they have the the sunglasses on. Mm. Oh, um, oh, it's uh, it's fifteen hundred miles to ink more pork. He said we've got three hundred and sixty elephants, fifty carts of forage. The monsoon's about to break, and we're wearing. We're wearing sorts of things like like glass, only only dark, dark <laughs> glass things on our eyes. I'm not gonna lie, I missed most of that line. Yeah, yeah. I, I listened I to a lot like, of this as an audiobook at like 1.25 speed. Yeah, it's like a minute. I was like, oh, oh, we're doing that. Yeah, I don't know why the elephants were really important because they kept coming back. Like they were a thing that that Dibbler really really wanted. Like, yeah. he kept trying to bring them up and force them into things. It was mainly just setting all of that up for the, the joke at the end. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's, like, it, it's fun as you go along, but it really is a shaggy dog story. Yeah, it yeah. is. Like, oh, the joke is, you ordered a thousand elephants and you don't have a movie studio anymore. But yeah, this is definitely a, one that I had read a few times, but not recently. So it was interesting Same. approaching it. It was it was really fun for me to read. I agreed that the pacing was solid, which is always something that I look for in a book. Um, weirdly enough, uh, and and this is errata for something I said previously on a previous recording. Um, I completely forgot that that it was the imps doing the painting. Somehow I remembered it as being actual film exposed to light and that that was kind of part of what transmitted the holy wood effect. Um, but I was just, I just remembered that completely wrong. Uh, whoops. There has to be light in film somewhere because I feel like that does cut. Like, I feel like I've auto? seen light being used. It's probably with auto tree. Yeah. Because that's his yeah. whole... Okay. Yeah, okay, that's where I've seen it. I was like, I know I've seen light used with film in Discord. It might be just auto or something. I think it's... Yeah, I think it... Or, like, 
there's some innovation and Otto happens to be, uh, unfortunately, having to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to wait a while for that, Justin. Sorry. I'm just going to, like, neuralize myself. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a fun book. You have fun with it, Aaron? I did. I didn't, you know, I got distracted because my brain is mush during the quarantines. But, um, yeah, it was fun to read. The, the last hundred pages or so really just sort of goes by in a flash. Yeah. I'm noticing a thing with a lot of Terry Pratchett books from like, it's only the middle of the book and this is feeling weirdly climaxy. I do not understand what's going to happen now. <laughs> and, and this then more was stuff not happens. an exception. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And it's like, this is feeling really climaxy. Where the fuck else can this go is what mm-hmm. my brain thinks at that point and I get a little bit exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> uh... I'm just, if I can't predict the structure, sometimes my brain is like, what What if we just didn't? <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was real fun. This is kind of, I mean, I think that it's officially uh, the first industry book, but just like a lot of other sort of first things, uh, it doesn't really have the framework fully set up yet. Um, so it really is just sort of like the sleet of inspiration theme that we've gotten like with, uh, well, and, and other folks, but then just sort of like takes it to an, another level. That's not really a theme though. This one definitely feels more like an inspiration book than it does like an industry book. Cause mm-hmm. while it is like a technological innovation, it's not something that sticks around and changes Discworld. You're right. Yeah. But I think that Nari is cued into it now. Mm-hmm. And, like, knows to watch out for these things now. Yeah. That moment where he thinks, if it gets out of hand, I'm going to have to start killing people, basically. Right. <laughs> how, is this, how is this person sitting next to me more, more well-known than I am? It was, it was interesting, that bit where he was, like, reflecting that, like, he wasn't the kind of person who cared about health things worked he just needed to know how the people worked and it's like mm-hmm. yep yeah oh, there I, he is i love that line that's our boy <laughs> that's our that's our garbage man oh, yeah the, the the hero worship was a really interesting aspect especially since like the the hero worship of victor and ginger like ultimately results in like the power of belief manifesting giant monstrous victor and ginger creatures that are literally larger than life it was it was uh i feel like that's that's kind of interesting um and i think that there's maybe something there with kind of how people are responding to the clicks and you know that your fame isn't necessarily a good thing. Yeah, it distorts how people view the people behind the movies for sure, which does have some real world parallels. Um, although not clearly more intense in Discworld. But also, I always enjoy when I I'm just always living for it when magic shows up in Discworld that isn't like the fancy in magic. It's like it works this way because this is the cultural language it has to work through or because like this 
or because or just because I believe hard enough that this is how it works. I enjoy mm-hmm. that a lot. I liked them like that sequence where Victor is like lights, picture box, action and starts yep. using movie rules to get yep. what he needs. Yeah. Very good. Very that's, good. That's that's really good. That was one of my favorite parts of the book. And you know, that was also the attack of the fifty foot woman. Oh, and King Kong as well. Yes. Oh, although, yeah, no, that although was I swapped King Kong. Extremely King Kong. Yeah. Where the, the giant woman uh, climbs the tower clutching the helpless ape. <laughs> and is buzzed by people flying and attacking it. Mm-hmm. And oh. then somebody says, literally, Twas Beauty killed the beast. Just to drive it home. <laughs> yep. I, I think it's like a thing, like not so much a theme, but it's like, there's definitely a thing here of just like how I I I can feel just 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 in my bones. It, it, it's like I can I could sense this that a number of future Discworld novels are going to involve uh, Dibbler taking things to their horrifying logical extreme and causing mayhem. It just, it feels like it because um, Dibbler has what I like to call uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneur energy where he just wants to make money and has no moral qualms about it. He also, he also has like a really good nose for opportunity. And this was the, this was, let's be real, the exact perfect situation for Dibbler himself. Like this, yes. this was where Dibbler shines. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he. This is a dip down into uh, another, other main, other themes, but yeah, the the whole through line of Dibbler commercializing art, discovering advertising, discovering product placement, and discovering but not quite really getting subliminal messaging, uh, was was a very clear like discussion. What do you mean that if? If showing a single frame of something <laughs> works, then showing ten minutes of it doesn't work Five. more. Yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> more is better. And and the the back and forth between him and Saul over all of that stuff was actually like a really funny bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was really enjoyable, especially. Oh, that I loved that. It was peppered in in a really solid way. Um, it was just like here and there. Like, kind of in every scene, there'd be this, like, little thing ping- pinning it down where Saul would be like, so, um, I was looking at the movie, and guess what I found, buddy? I found something. And it had almost like a, I don't want to say Marx Brothers rhythm, but it had, like, a rhythm that, that comedies in, like, early Hollywood could have with the, mm-hmm. like, rivalry and, like, not one-upsmanship. Like, one tries to do the thing, the other foils it, and that just keeps going and building and building. And there's, yeah, I don't know, a rhythm to it forth. that isn't super common for me now, but felt very much in tune with the other Hollywood stuff that was happening. Um, remembered my theme. <laughs> Yay, Minna! Um... Well, something I thought was really neat about this was kind of how it drove home that, like, the Discworld is a fantasy world, but there's a kind of realism to it that, like, the 
Hollywood, Hollywood realism, like, set off really nicely. Like, there are things that are a lot more difficult in the disc world or that, that aren't likely to happen uh, that are just commonplace in Hollywood lo logic. And it was kind of fun to see that. I don't know, it just, it just did a good job of, like, making the disc world feel more real somehow. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually a really good point, discussing how 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 there's even this sort of distortion between fantasy Discworld. Yeah, I like that a lot. Oh, there's actually a quote. I have a quote. Hold on. The Discworld is as unreal as it is possible to be while still being just real enough to exist and just real enough to be in real trouble. <laughs> oh, that's a good quote. It's real good. Oh, do we want to talk about tropes? Where do we even begin? This is a book of tropes. Yeah. yeah it really we may is. just have to pepper them in, much like Terry Pratchett did. Yeah. I think one yeah. that I really one that I really like, which was it sort of almost is maybe more of a theme than a trope, but the Detri Detritus Ruby romance, it's not how trolls historically express romantic intent, but they follow the script. Because yeah. because Hollywood demands it. I think there's something to be said for the script being specifically a human-centric script. And mm -hmm. that a lot of this Hollywood magic and logic is a human-centric mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. but, like, really, there's there's like, these implicit biases that like are kind of getting questioned, but not enough to change it. Well, I think it's a I think it's almost a discussion of how uh popular culture kind of spreads organically yeah and you know indents yeah and like how yeah and i think there's like a bit about just like how that homogenizes mm -hmm. like you very much get like a thing of like that like western cinema you know homogenizes what romance is yeah um what heroic tales are. Who gets to be um, the hero in heroic and, tales. Mm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Also, a lot of cosmic horror tropes, which I'm not calling Lovecraftian anymore. Yeah. Yeah, no, cosmic horror, reality horror, horror is a uh, name for the genre that I am, uh, that I much prefer. And I, I died at Cthinema. I God. Oh, that was so yeah. good. That was such a, that was a, like... That was that was such a like low like that that was like such a low swing that Terry Pratchett was using golf club instead of a baseball bat. <laughs> Here's the thing is that I <laughs> and it I think the thing that makes yeah. it better is that there's no indication that Cthulhu is a thing in the Discworld. He just or it just got called Cthinema. <laughs> and well, but also there's that whole long reference to uh, Ahmed, who I just get these headaches sometimes. Oh yeah, yeah. Because the um, which is which is the whole, on the necro the, the necrotelonomicon. <laughs> yeah. Um, the necronomicon was supposed to be written by Amon the Mad, right? Oh. Mm -hmm. I believe the name is. I think, uh, and I think it's the necrotelecomicon. Necro it's. Yeah, necrotelecomicon. Uh, the necronomicon was written by, uh, the the fictional person who is ascribed to it is um. A Arab writer, I believe, named Azif. 
It's not right. But it was something oh, the mad. Al Hazred, who is said to be a uh, half crazed Arab. Yeah, mm-hmm. but the the, <laughs> the entire thing about no, I just get bad headaches, mm-hmm. which mood. <laughs> Well, and also, it, supposedly, he wrote it uh, when he drank too much Clatchian coffee and got mm-hmm. knurred. Mm-hmm. That was so good. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, and as as a bit of a note here, um, for the listeners, if you want to catch a bunch of the uh, Hollywood tropes that are, like, peppered through, the L-Space wiki actually it has, like, an annotate uh, annotations file um, that is extremely good and doesn't actually have I think there's one or two very minor spoilers for future books but it's basically self-contained um, so if you're not super familiar with like old Hollywood and the sorts of things that the book might be referencing checking that out is pretty good i think that the really reference heavy ones are the ones that i really like to use l space on didn't do it a lot with this one but i felt the urge because it was definitely helpful on weird sisters also which has the same thing yeah i i I actually kind of have to read this because the i just really love it from a a fan of this genre it contained forbidden knowledge. Well, not actually forbidden. No one had ever gone so far as forbidding it, apart from anything else. In order to forbid it, you'd have to know what it was, which was forbidden. But it definitely contained the sort of information which, once you knew it, you wished you hadn't. He had a good way with words. So I think for me, the button on this is, uh, it goes back to the inspiration piece. Um, like, like, the... the this book delves really heavily into that. And there's a sequence about how, like, for instance, people who would be fantastic flute players, um, but who never had the opportunity to play a flute, um, etc. And this is one of those things where I, as a person, I'm never sure how I feel about that particular, like, line of logic. Um, because on the one hand, I, I don't, generally like things that describe talent as some sort of predestination because I think that it um, you know downplays a lot of the hard work that people who are you know, very talented at things put in to be talented at them like that you know even the people who are extremely amazing at playing the flute, they fucking practice constantly all the time for hours. Um, uh, and I think it plays into the sort of cultural nat- narrative of like, some people are like predestined to be really good at math and like everybody else, like you're just bad at math. And I don't, like, I don't think that's what he's saying really. Though. Yeah. I, I, this is a broader, this is a broader thing for me. Okay. Um, but I, I think it, it does, it's not saying that, but I think it, it ties into that general cultural narrative around talent that I am not a fan of. But I think that there's, I think that there's a flip side here that there's um, a kind of interesting commentary on privilege and opportunity and how those can intersect with like the perception of talent that, um, 
you know, some people don't end up air quotes talented at something because they, you know, never had the opportunity to encounter it. Yeah, that's what I thought he was going for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's that's more than I thought as well. I I agree that that's more of what he was going for here. It's it's that it's a narrative and such that I think has kind of a a double-edged sword just in general. It just hits on one of my pet peeves. <laughs> so I have a couple different ones queued up and I'll go with the small ones first and then my personal fun one. Um, there's a, a sort of offhanded line uh, because there's this whole through line of Dibbler's describing his films as, you know, set against the background of a world gone mad. Uh, Why is it all Mr. Dibbler's films are set against the background of a world gone mad? Said the dwarf. Saul's eyes narrowed. Because Mr. Dibbler, he growled, is a very observant man. <laughs> Which is just sort of like... <sighs> yeah. Is Dibbler in 2020? Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, also Dibbler... I mean, also Discworld is always just nonsense. Yes. When they when they burn the the model of Ankh-Morpork for the Gone with the Wind film, uh, the real city uh Mark Park had been burned down many times in its long history out of revenge or carelessness or spite or even just for the insurance reference there <laughs> a very good callback <laughs> most of the big stone buildings that actually made it a city as opposed simply to a load of hovels all in one place survived them intact and many people uh footnote the ones living in stone buildings anyway considered that a good fire every hundred years or so was essential to the health of the city since it helped to keep down the rats, roaches, fleas, and, of course, people not rich enough to live in stone houses. It has the same energy for me as the first, uh, as the one from Color of Magic, which is that, like, the people of Ankh burn the bridges so that that they can't, they, they, that the fire doesn't spread to them. Um, but the one that I really want to talk about is uh, when they're talking about the decisive battle that ended the Ankh-Morpork Civil War, uh, which was fought between two handfuls of bone-weary men in a swamp early one misty morning, and although one side claimed victory, ended with a practical score of humans zero, ravens 1,000, which is the case with most battles. Something that both Dibblers were agreed on was that if they'd been in charge, no one would have been able to get over with such a low-grade war. Uh, which I think speaks very heavily to uh, the media's glorification of war and mythologizing it. This is only slightly referencing or related, but like, is that the same? I think that's the same one that Will's written a speech for, right? Like, I feel like there was Probably. a speech that Will wrote that was a king rallying some people in a in a swamp outside Ankh-Morpork. That is also possibly putting drama and glory into war uh, that did not exist there in the first place. Yeah, I'm sure St. Crispin's Day actually happened. Well, yeah, it was it was like a St. Crispin's Day speech <laughs> reference, but I think it might right. have been the same. I'm not sure, right, but right, it right. might have been the same thing. Right. No, no what, I'm, what I'm saying is that, you know, in real life, I'm sure that Richard V actually uh, said those v. words. <laughs> Henry, excuse me, Henry V actually said those words. Yeah, to, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. No, the, the, the peasants and uh, and men at arms and stuff. I have a couple also. Um, uh, it's 
Ginger is talking about Hollywood, and she says, It's a chance for all of us, the people who aren't wizards and kings and heroes. Hollywood's like a big bubbling stew, but this time different ingredients float to the top. Suddenly there's all these new things for people to do. Do you know theaters don't allow women to act? But Hollywood does, and in Hollywood there's jobs for trolls that don't involve just hitting people. And what did the handlemen do before they had handles to turn? And I think there's something really poignant about that for me, about, frankly, uh, the society that Discworld is at the moment, which is still a fairly uh, sexist and speciesist society. And there's, there's, and also obviously classist, and like, it's being used to like, it's that way because there's a lot of using comedy to poke fun at real world things, but there's something to be said about having that opportunity for however briefly (laughs) in this world. Even if it's only a dream, a Hollywood dream. When they're building the model of Ankh Pork to be b- burned, and they're like, but we could just go to the real city and it would be better. And he's like, no, the model's going to be more real because Ankh Pork doesn't look real enough. And I just thought it was a really interesting encapsulation of how movies are portrayed here and how, how the magic of the movies works here. Like, it's... Yeah, there's like another line they have where it's like... Where they're just where where it's describing the fake Ankhmor pork, and it was like it's even and, and like the narration says that it's more Ankhmor pork than Ankhmor. Yeah, pork. where where this where stylization is used to like draw like a, a tighter lens on what they're actually trying to portray than like just showing a completely objective like version of it. Well, I have I have something that I wanted to bring up, which is that I actually felt like this book was, in some ways, a weird parallel to Pyramids, in that they're both, as Minna pointed out, they're both standalones. Um, they both have some of the same themes in terms of, like, the nature of belief and, like, willing things into being. Um, but Moving Pictures is a good book. Uh that um, you know, the the film industry and early Hollywood are clearly things that Terry was a lot more familiar with than ancient Egypt, and so he he wasn't pulling stuff out of his ass, um, and it ultimately ends up with a book that's honestly a lot more you know it's it's a lot better book overall. Um, and I, I I felt like they're an interesting little pair, though, in that they're saying some of the same things and they're both standalones, but this one is so much better. Yeah, up to and including the the moments at the end where where Victor ascends to movie godhood. Also, I I'm not a huge fan of Gaspode when he appears in the future, but I do like him here. Um, in particular, because I felt like he was playing an interesting role of the kind of the the, the shady agent role. <laughs> I felt like oh no. was actually pretty fitting here. Is hot? It is guess about the Han Solo of this book. 
You're not wrong. <laughs> I, but I think he has a better place here uh-huh. than he does when he appears in the he future. Does. Like he fits. He fits a like. It's actually a good arc for him. Like he has an arc to himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and like it makes sense that there would be a like foul mouthed pragmatic um, scheming agent character in this book about Hollywood. Uh, it just it just so happens that he's a dog. Mm-hmm. I just, I also love the constant mild confusion and concern that goes over people's faces when they sort of half realize that he's saying woof. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite is at the time he's like, I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to reveal my big secret, which is supposed to be a big plot moment where he gives up his like, his safety, his safe aloofness. <laughs> it doesn't fucking work. And yeah. I have to do a lasting routine instead. Yeah. <laughs> because nobody's paying attention to him. They're only paying attention to Laddie. That was a beautiful subversion <laughs> of, yeah. of like the expected plot beat. So do we want to talk about racism and in, uh, in speciesism in early Hollywood? <sighs> yeah, let's. So on yeah. the good side, we see a lot of discussion about trolls and dwarves and how they are pretty concerned about the fact that they can only get certain roles. Yeah. That the, the trolls are, you're only there as, you know, muscle and villains and monsters. And the dwarves only sing hi ho, hi ho. Poor dwarves. Or a particularly dirty version of hi ho, hi ho, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. They, 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 they eventually co-opt that, which I, I, I think is cool. Um, I feel like there's also like a um, like there are at least a couple um, references for trolls for like how uh, Jewish people are like conceived in the history of Hollywood. Um, like there is a, there there's a bit where one of the trolls talks about like uh, getting his nose fixed. Mm hmm. Um, and, and there's also like a reference to a tr- uh, a sedentary anti-defamation league. Wow, I did not pick up on that. Although I did pick up on the if you prick us, do we not bleed? <laughs> no, you don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, you do not. Ah, <laughs> uh, which immediately had me flashing back to a '40s movie, uh, which was also referencing that Shylock line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of it's kind of heavy-handed, mm-hmm. but I think that it's something that still holds up quite well mm-hmm. overall. And that it's, it's acknowledged and discussed. They're not made mm-hmm. fun of for wanting it. Right. Yeah. The main thing that I think is kind of heavy-handed and, you know, especially in the context of, you know, recent fantasy tabletop RPG discourse, um, you know, the practice of having a fantasy race like the trolls and the dwarves stand in for a real world marginalized group has its problems um but at least this is kind of talking about the problems 
Um, and you know, that's something that will come back in a bunch of Discworld is uh yeah, the having having a an a, another species stand in for a real world marginalized group. I don't even think that trolls are standing in for it beyond the context of this book. Like, they were used, I think, to sort of satirize that a little bit. But mm -hmm. I think it was just for this book. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's a concept that kind of, not necessarily with the trolls and the dwarves, but it's a concept that, like, comes back yeah, a few yeah. times. In terms of things that stand up well to the test of time. Um, I, I want to put a note in here that I just absolutely love Victor's school con bit. Mm -hmm. It felt, it felt almost like Jeeves and Wooster-ish. Yeah. Like yeah. Oh my like, God. The wizards yeah. felt really Jeeves and Wooster in this. Yeah. That, that like, I felt like that was particularly timeless that you could imagine him being like, some sort of like Victorian or 1920s like foppish lad who's hem who whose family hoped he would make something for himself rather than just living off of his inheritance, but never amounted to anything. Um or or like he would also fit pretty well in modern times. I always keep thinking him of Victor as like Matt Bomer as Neil Caffrey from the show White Collar <laughs> of like, you know, being smart at you know, having the most benefit for the least work and also, like, inordinately pretty. I like that you brought up the Jeeves and Wooster thing because I didn't think about that with Victor, but I definitely thought about it once uh, they got, once the old wizards got started on, like, stories of their youth <laughs> and they all mm. had ridiculous nicknames and, like, were dropping mm -hmm. piglets in chapels. <laughs> Where I was like, this is just, this is just, this is just Jeeves and Wooster. Yeah. I really liked the, the Mrs. Cosmopolite bits. Oh, those are fun. Uh, yeah. You know, especially yeah. with the, the, the section where where Victor is standing guard in Ginger's room. And but he's like, he's worried about the propriety of everything. And Ginger's like, oh, no, she'll just think we're having sex. Don't worry about it. Instead of, <laughs> you know, trying to, trying to thwart an eldritch, eldritch horror. Well, wasn't she a seamstress? <laughs> I believe so. An actual yeah. seamstress. Yes, uh, but still, there's a there's resonances in Discworld if you call someone a seamstress, whether they're a literal one or not. <laughs> yes. Well, we'll we'll get into we'll get into more good seamstress bits. <laughs> getting getting back to the racism, I think that there's some bits that haven't aged as well. Um, some of the some of the pieces of the films um so i think you could you could either argue like the things with like the clatchin bandits and stuff like mm. that you could definitely argue that terry is using dibbler and using those movies to kind of make a statement about the problematic content in early hollywood um you could also argue that kind of reproducing it is in and of itself not Fantastic. It's like pointed out as bad by other people in the book. Yeah. It's, yeah. I feel like it's like all those moments that we've had before, like where it's like X explorer 
thought, why dumb thing, but actually this is what was happening. Where it's like, reproducing the racist thing, or like the colonialist thing, for like, a funny joke, but not say anything particularly interesting about it, necessarily. I, I also felt like there was a lot of kind of casual racism in the elephant subplot. Mm-hmm. Um, I regret to inform you that Nigel Planer did voices on that bit. Oh, I'm sorry. That is too bad. Once more. That's very unfortunate. It has been zero books since Nigel Planer did an unfortunate voice that made the thing worse. Yeah, the, the, the elephant's bit is... It's it's a shaggy dog story, and it doesn't really add much to the book. Mm. Yeah. The only good part of it is the Blues Brothers reference, which was, in fact, <laughs> old. But it's, a, it's an awfully long bit just to have one Blues Brothers reference. Mm-hmm. They could have... Honestly, they could have fit... Uh, like, Terry could have fit a Blues Brothers reference in with the Wizards and company headed yeah. to uh, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. That would have been the perfect Blues Brothers. I'm not convinced mm-hmm. the elephants were only to set up that joke. Yeah. There was, there was some sort of, I think this is something with the kind of cultural racial memory of Hollywood of like that the, the resograph had elephants on it and like Dibbler keeps thinking of elephants and there's the broader elephant subplot. Um, it just never really yeah, comes together I never, coherently. I never figured out why it was specifically elephants. I thought maybe it was a reference to a specific movie that had a bunch of elephants, but I haven't been able to find one. The closest I can find is that it might be like a Ben-Hur thing. Um not really sure. Which didn't have elephants. It was just a lot of horses and people. I think it's mostly just to show the extremes of ridiculous spectacle. Yeah, really. yeah. And, yeah. well, honestly, elephants are a big thing in Discworld, so I can see that being an image that he would reach for. Well, I I have one more thing to talk about. I was just see, I just wanted to see if anybody else wanted to talk about anything first, because I spent a lot of time no, talking. No, but I, I agree with everything that you've said. I will agree. Uh, Anna has put the uh, the bit with the implications of dogs and clutchy and takeaway. No thanks. Please don't do this. Please stop with yeah. the joke. It's not yeah. even funny. Yeah. Uh, well, and so there was that 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 there's the you know again like yeah there's these bits of casual racism um, that was not good. Uh, the other broad thing that I wasn't a fan of is there was this kind of implication, and this is another thing that wasn't really fleshed out, not unlike the elephants, um, which is that there's some sort of like race memory, uh, Jungian collective unconscious thing uh, aspect of Hollywood that like Vic or that that Ginger is like you know, the granddaughter of one of the priestesses or, you know, and everybody who was drawn to Hollywood had some sort of, like, tie in their past to the sunken city. I feel like that's just lazy writing. Like, there's no reason that that has to be, like... I was perfectly happy with the explanation up to that point, which was that there was just something in them that was awoken by this, and they were useful to what the, like, cut-me-own-throat-dibbler 
everything about him is yeah. extremely useful for the Hollywood magic to work through. Yeah. And and I think that it ends up tying into something that wasn't intentional for Terry, which is that it sort of ties into this idea that some people are destined for fame and everybody else isn't. That, you know, that some people were drawn to Hollywood oh. and others Oh, I hate weren't. that you brought that up because that, like, directly undercuts the thing that I enjoyed about the Hollywood stuff where it was like, yeah, we could not let this into the world because it was literally tearing it apart. But also it was this fantasy... It wasn't a real thing, but it was a fantasy that, like, anyone can be anything, which is kind of a kind of part of the Hollywood right. fantasy. But then it's not, that, but but then then it's not, not true. true. Like, even in the it's fantasy, it's not true. Yeah. And it's like... Yeah. And I think, I think that that's, that's exactly it. That I think that having this kind of racial memory thing, it's sloppy writing, it's not fully fleshed out within it's just thrown in as, as this aside to like explain everything um and it undercuts a lot of what terry was actually trying to say so yeah i don't think that that particular bit is good yeah i think like cutting in with like what things could be done differently i mean it could have just i i feel like you could have just easily instead had to like i don't know maybe 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 if this was rerun today or something Probably wouldn't be rewritten, but, um, but like it's just the people who are drawn by the lore mm-hmm. of Hollywood. Yeah, and you know that which but, was like, a trope because it's like, uh, yeah, yeah, like that. That is like that is a significant trope yeah. in like real world. I mean, Hollywood. isn't that the Muppets movie? <laughs> well, and, yeah. and like I think yes. it's used also to like explain like why Ginger specifically was like trying to help with wake up the statue or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's also, you could just be like, you know, maybe there's something in your character that it, that just worked with it because that's, again, that worked for most of the book. We didn't yeah. need to have another explanation. <laughs> then we've got two pieces here that just could be completely cut wholesale from the book and end up with a better book. Uh, the elephants and that, like racial memory collective unconscious bit. So according to Elspace, uh, the elephant thing is a reference to Kabiria, a 1914 film, uh, which is set around the second Punic war, uh, where, mm. uh, Hannibal supposedly. Oh, leads the elephants that's over. why they did a Hannibal um, elephants over the mountains thing. Early. It's an early, early silent. Uh, and it's, considered the uh first epic movie that makes a lot of sense Mm. especially if hannibal was involved and according to scorsese deserves credit for many of the innovations offered often attributed to dw griffith and cecil b demille well good on on him for choosing something i am i stand this I stand this yes. movie just because I was it fucks so scared DW there would Griffin. be a Birth of the Nation reference. I didn't really think it would be happening, but I was scared. Oh, that was that, that was a big worry of mine. I was like, ooh. I'm I mean, like, we okay, still okay, got okay, Gone with the Wind, which isn't yep. great either, but better than Birth of a Nation. Yeah. On the other hand, 
Uh, we're doing one about going to see a wizard, something about following a yellow sick toad. I like that. <laughs> Are there wizards <laughs> allowed in Hollywood? Oh, this isn't a real wizard. <laughs> one, la- one last thing, since, you know, I might as well just keep talking. <laughs> um, one last thing that uh, I felt like could have been done differently is I feel like the way that everything mm-hmm. goes back to just basically all being the same, like things go back to the status quo, is really feels very not Discworld that other than this, largely each book has ended with things moving forward in some way. And to have the conclusion be like, magic gone, everything back to normal, life as usual, it seems very kind of off-brand. It's especially weird when we keep talking about this as the first industry book, when this is really not having the effect of an industry book. Mm-hmm. It might not be. I'm not entirely sure. Um, it's considered to be the first industry book. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, um, it feels to me like this is where this is where Vetinari is like, oh, these incursions can happen. It's like it's like EU Emperor. Like, oh, these incursions could happen. I need to devise ways to channel them positively rather than let them. You know. Oh, you mean some BDSM aliens are coming to the galaxy? Better build the planet, killer. <laughs> <laughs> No, blue guy, you can't have more Star Destroyers. <laughs> and this is borrowing from the future a little bit, but I think I can say it without major spoilers, which is that the next industry book is going to be The Truth, which is actually split. Some things stick around and other things go back. Mm. Goodreads does list moving pictures as Industrial Re- Revolution number one. Yeah, makes sense to me. Oh, Wow. Weird. Monstrous Regiment is pre-going postal. I really thought it was post. Huh. Oh. Sorry. This is this is an aside. <laughs> no, the moist books are really late. I just really thought MR was post-going postal because of the technology thing, but I guess they just had that show. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I just had my worldview offended slightly about the order of books. <laughs> Listeners, are you hungry right now? Like, really, really hungry. Like, really, really hungry. Could you go for a plate of ribs, or maybe two, or four, or eight? Harga's House of Ribs. (laughs) You should visit Harga's House of Ribs. Maybe now and after listening to this podcast. One dollar all you can garble. (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> that was worth it. That was great. We're about two hours in. We're getting, we're getting to the end of the document. I was loopy at the beginning of the recording. God, there's so many things that become like so many references to stuff that's happened before, and also so many things that like those of us who have seen more of the later books freak out every time we see you know people are in trouble when they like cut me on throat sausages uh and so that's the first sign that something's wrong with the alchemist skilled um which is yeah. noted to us by uh one of veterinary's spies who became a spy for veterinary quote entirely of his own free will <laughs> i love that remember this
that that seems that seems totally <laughs> legit and totally believable. No, I love that yeah. it was explained that it was of his own free will rather than what like the scorpion pits. <laughs> right. He was entirely he was entirely free to choose to go to the scorpion pits. <laughs> I love that Nori's um, like free will. We get like we get a good callback to one of the mm-hmm. few good bits from pyramids. Oh uh, yeah. Which is that the camel is too smart to re- to reveal that it is a talking and camel. I guess it's a cousin of you bastard because it's named evil minded son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just yeah. figured that was the naming convention for all camels. <laughs> yeah. So this is borrowing from the future again slightly, but I think this is actually the last time we see the dungeon dimensions as like an actual thing. Yeah, they are referred to, but we never really see them manifest again. Which I'm not mad about. Yeah. This is a this is a solid, you know, solid finale for the Dungeon Dimensions like, as a as a antagonist. I feel like this yeah. is the best they've ever been. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cuz it's like they the, the, the their appearances in Two, four, and five. Two, two, three, and five are, um, I will say, generic at best. Yeah. But in this one, they like, they get weird and they have to play by some funky book specific mm-hmm. rules. Yeah. Um, I really liked the image of like the giant ginger that's just getting weirder and weirder as like, the the things hold on reality collapses um uh-huh. which i thought was a very good use of a cosmic horror trope mm-hmm. also justin your best boy shows up a few times oh yes yes uh, referring to of death. course we're not referring, referring to, to the luggage <laughs> the luggage I mean, didn't show up i just up. figured we could check here because there are some there are some watch there there are a couple of voice with the watch but yeah death has some fun stuff in this book Get, makes a couple makes a couple appearances and he's he's as always delightful. So I guess one of the rule one of the things that he we, we sort of are expanding on his mythos and death's mythos and that it appears that he can now appear to barkeepers too. Yes. Or I am I am c- constructing a theory on this right now. I'm listening. Barkeepers as well as all customer service employees have seen so much shit that they are immune to illusions and just well, accept I mean, the world for what it is. Like halfway to death anyway. A, A, this man is only <laughs> somewhat immune yeah. to the illusion. He pretty much only notices death while he's asking for another drink and then forgets about him immediately. <laughs> or like is only like semi-aware mm. that there might be somebody weird hanging out. Also, this is specifically a bar full of sad, weird people. So he ex- he expects this. this is just life for him and it's all about the expectation and ponder stibbins isn't important yet but he will be ponder is a good boy. i like ponder a lot ponder's sort of uh, the new breed of wizard i love i love that side note i love how the wizards deal with the fact that they they uncover victor's scheme <laughs> and so i didn't i didn't go into this in the synopsis because it was just a little bit but it's a very good bit the, the wizards uncover Victor's scheme. <laughs> and so they give him an exam that he can only get 0% or 
or 100% on. The only question on the exam is, what is your name? It's because he's mm-hmm. carefully been getting so 84% ponder, on every single exam, and they're over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, ponder spills ink on his own exam, and since Victor's not there, you know, asks if he can switch over to Victor's seat and use Victor's exam. And then he turns it over and is just like, what the fuck? And gets the easiest exam ever completely by chance. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. And we may have to cut this from the actual episode. This is just for entertainment purposes. I need you to hear how Nigel Planer did the lounge singer singing. <laughs> I just thought it was some really good voice acting there. I rag on Nigel Planer a lot, but he's good <laughs> sometimes. I thought it was really funny that Silverfish, who's I guess the one who discovered uh, octocellulose, which is what they used for their film, uh, very clearly discovers uranium at the end, uh, which another alchemist is like, I hope that doesn't go boom. And he was like, well, why would it? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But it also references back to what Anna pulled out as the button, which is the, you know, it's, it's a thing that's hitting at the wrong time. Yeah. This guy, this guy's like, Will. he just has random misplaced inspiration hit him he's an alchemist it usually hits them with uh, a shockwave there was kind of a fun tension between the alchemists and the wizards that i was enjoying but it it petered out a lot once we got to hollywood (laughs) i think one of them called wizards bloated thaumocrats which was a fun phrase and the wizards just like being like oh exploding it's annoying but that's that's just what the alchemists do, Listen, I guess. Kind of on the alchemist side, <laughs> is all I'm saying. <laughs> like an underdog. They actually do stuff. I mean, I, I, some of it is extremely exothermic, but they do stuff. Oh, I love the phrase that's in there regarding the alchemists, that the only thing they've managed to do thus far is turn gold into less gold. <laughs> yeah. That's just such a such a good little phrase. So since we're on our miscellany bit, I feel I need to bring an important, absolutely necessary thing that we need to talk about. That Rock and Mori are both definitely, uh, they both definitely yes. sound like Korg yes. from Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> yes. A Kiwi accent? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know what? All trolls have Kiwi accents. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, actually like that better let's just than go all with that. have Scottish accents, which is how it is in the audiobooks right now. It's better than old dwarves having Scottish accents, I guess. I, honestly, I might be misplacing the accent that he's using, but they do all have a very specific accent that they share that reads to me as somewhere up north. Uh, I don't know. I think Scottish, but I might be wrong. Please don't. Lots of planets of the north. <laughs> Well, my yes. mid-Atlantic accent will feature in the, the front of this episode. I promise to never do my Scottish accent in the in uh, within recording unless Aaron takes it out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, shipping corner. Yeah, they're they're they're. I think I think I think the Tritus and Rose are cute. 
Yeah, Detritus and Ruby are really cute. Can R- I propose Ruby, something? That's what I was yeah, they're Rich Cully they're and cute. the Bursar are an excellent odd couple. I, I will agree with this. Like It doesn't I have to be romantic, but I do need more of them. I just want, like, I hate ship them together. I don't want them to be... I, I don't care about the... Except in the fact that I need them to be continually adversarial. Yes. No, I need them to have this exact bickering relationship forever. Like... It can be a slow burn or it can be not necessarily romantic. I just need them to keep doing this. Put a pin in that. They have a good energy. <laughs> it's extremely good. What about what about Victor and Ginger? Mm. I think they're fine. They're nice. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of the just kind of there, the way that several of the other main relationships have been in these books. Yeah. All of the chemistry is on screen. Yeah. yeah. Although um, she does tie him up. At I think one it's point. like. Did she do yeah. that or did Hollywood do that? Uh, you know. They're not special. They're definitely like the top half of Terry's relationship. I just won't. I don't think they'll be memorable to me the way that I think Ruby and Detritus would be. Yeah. Yes. I actually like that the off screen relationship really isn't super romantic between them. Like that they're. Yeah. They're friends off screen, but you know, even even if they you know have the passionate moments on screen, um, there really isn't any kind of chemistry in the regular world. And I thought that that was actually fairly decent. It would have been pretty easy to you know give them chemistry otherwise as well. Oh shoot! You know the um the the this this is backtracking a bit, but the the stars in the eyes thing felt very, I, I'm almost wondering if Charles Strauss stole that later on for like the, the eaters in the night. Mm. Cause the little ghost worm you are in the back of your eyes. Little green, green worms yeah. in the eyes. I think this was just, they, they have stars in their eyes. Right. Quite literally. But it's also a sign of like the, the, you know, uh, Eldritch infestation. I think something weird happening to the eyes is pretty universally not great. Um, what was I gonna say? Sorry, back to shipping. Uh, I think there's a thing. I think there's a thing with like the romances that Terry actually writes on the page, especially with the main characters of a story, where it's just kind of like friendship more than anything. Like it's really hard to read any particular romantic buildup in it, which is fine, but it's uh, they're not often the most compelling to me. Which I think we talked about a bit with um, Guards Guards, where I don't... The build-up to sibling vibes didn't really get me, but I I enjoy them as a pair together a lot. And Terry was clearly attempting to build Sybil and Vimes up as a couple, which I don't think he was really trying with Victor and Ginger. Oh, okay. I kind of assumed that they were supposed to be like, a thing, but that might just have been my assumptions because of that's how the story quote unquote should end and it that's what yeah. this book is like. <laughs> yeah. Well and that's kind of what I was saying that I, I feel like it would have been very like easy to fall into, you know, clearly they're, you know, destined mm-hmm. to, to kiss at the end and 
you know, go off merrily into the sunset together. And then that just, like, doesn't happen at all. Like, because the ones it did happen to were Ruby and Detritus, and it's really cute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, str- the stray Hollywood magic that followed them and gave them, like, a Casablanca and then, like, Fred, a, like, like a an animated Fred Astaire, dance. Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was real fun. There was a little Casablanca, a little Fred Astaire, mm-hmm. and just absolute ridiculousness and very fun. Also, <laughs> I, I, you could feel it coming a mile away, but that moment earlier on when Ruby is like, rocks thrown at your head may be quite sentimental, but diamonds are a girl's right. best friend or something. <laughs> and yeah. Detroit's just like, you want my teeth? That's <laughs> <laughs> just... They're a nice mixture of ridiculous and actually ridiculous really cute. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I like the fact that they gave Ruby most of the classic uh female lead lines. Yeah. yeah. But she doesn't feel I will say that something really fun about both her and Gender is that neither of them they're sexualized, but neither of them is like, for example, um what's her face? That assassin type that that um, Rince oh. Wind ran into and a cold shiver went down my spine. Yeah, um, Konina. Yeah, like none of them none of them are sexualized like that, I mm-hmm. feel like, which was really refreshing, frankly. Yeah, there weren't any like long loving descriptions of There was like them. one description of um, Ruby's body and like mentions of ginger's decolletage but only in a way that was like highlighting how dumb like the advertising for the movies was yeah yeah i don't know it felt it felt different to me and i was fine with it and it was good (laughs) so ratings so i'll give it roughly four fifths of the stars in the hollywood walk of fame i will give it 78 out of 100 extravagant references Eight and a half out of 12 singing dwarves. Uh, and I'll give it three and a half out of five stars in... Wait, that's too many eyes. Okay, now we get to do the next bit. Justin. Yes. Uh, what's the next book? Reaper Man. Reaper Man. Reaper Man. Reaper Man. Okay. We are on book 11 out of 40 now. We, we're a quarter of the way done. Yeah. We did. We are. <laughs> I'm really I'm really impressed with our, you know, sticking with this. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm proud of us. There, they say there are only two things you can count on. But that was before death started pondering the existential. Of course, the last thing anyone needs is a squeamish grim reaper. And soon his Discworld bosses has sent him off with best wishes and a well-earned gold watch. Now, Death is having the time of his life, finding greener pastures where he can put his scythe to a whole new use. But like every cutback in important public service, Death's demise soon leads to chaos and unrest. Literally, for those whose time was supposed to be up, like Wendell Poons. The oldest geezer in the entire faculty of Unseen University, home of magic, wizardry, and big dinners, Wendell was looking forward to a wonderful afterlife. Not this boring, been there, done that routine, 
To get the fresh start he deserves, Wendell and the rest of Ankh-Morpork's undead and underemployed set off to find death and save the world for the living. And everyone else, of course. It's a death book. I'm so excited about this. Yep. It's our boy. Yeah! Death gets a vacation what? again. Or possibly dies. Death I don't gets, know. Death Either gets furloughed. Yes. Death gets furloughed. Last time he got an intern, this time he gets furloughed. <laughs> Good. Cut it, print it. Excellent. That's a wrap. Join us next time as we read Reaper Man. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com. Thank you.